Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. Welcome to this week's episode. This week, I'm speaking with Julie McCaldin. The reality of life as an artist wasn't working for Julie, despite her lifelong love of art. Childhood memories and a freak accident collided to help Julie choose her next move. Now she's on a saucy quest to bring the joy of good salsa to the people of the UK. And next, the world. I just very slowly started to question everything because something like that happens and you just realize anything could happen. Anything could happen anytime. What am I actually doing with my life? Hi, Julie. I'm so excited to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm really good. And I'm so happy to be here today. Yes. Thank you for joining me. I know you've listened to some of my episodes, how I tend to take people back in time, but I'm going to take you to a very specific point in time. I would like to hear about you sitting in an American Mexican restaurant in your teens. (laughs) Can we please start with that? Yes, yes, definitely. So yeah, so there was this amazing restaurant in Herndon, Virginia called the Tortilla Factory. And we used to go there. I used to live in the States from when I was eight to when I was 12. And my dad stayed living out there. And we would go back every summer. And it was like, you know, one of the highlights of the trip was going to this amazing kind of Tex-Mex restaurant and it was just exactly what you would imagine just like really brightly colored all the walls were festooned with pinatas and they just gave you the most amazing salsa because as you know in the states whenever you go to a restaurant they very wisely give you something to eat as soon as you sit down to shut you up and keep you happy (laughs) and in this place they gave you like a basket of tortilla chips and this tiny little bowl of salsa. And it was just unlike anything I had ever tasted before. It was very saucy and not like a kind of chunky Doritos type salsa that you might get here in the UK in the supermarket. And it was just the most delicious and addictive thing. And so we would always ask for more. And they also sold it in like enormous tubs to take away. So they were basically just renowned for their house salsas. And I have very kind of vivid memories of being there with my family. And I remember my dad and my stepmom bumping into some people that they knew. And they were planning a trip to England And they said, do y'all wear jeans over there? (laughs) But this was the 90s. So it was like, it was before the internet. I got asked a lot of questions. Did we have electricity yet? Oh my God. You know, this was, it was before the internet, but there were all kinds of questions like that. But I would think that people were at least, I don't know, I don't know, if nothing else, like the Beatles, like they knew music. I'm I'm trying to think of things that are like, you know, we know are modern. Oh my gosh, that that's almost, that's a little embarrassing. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. That's okay. That's, that's totally not your fault. <laughs> it's funny because you don't normally hear someone with an English accent going on about Mexican restaurant. I mean, for me, that, and for anybody who's listening who's American, that is so easy to conjure up this image of 
My childhood, we had this chain that probably now if I could still eat at Chi Chi's Mexican restaurant, I'd be like, this is terrible. But in my mind, it's my childhood Mexican restaurant. And it was like every birthday we wanted to go to this restaurant. Yeah. And if it was your birthday, you got to wear a sombrero and they'd sing this special Chi Chi's birthday song, which I remember, but I won't torture you. (laughs) I'd love to hear it. (laughs) Okay. Hold on. So it's your birthday, so it's your birthday, boom, boom, happy birthday to our guests. It's your birthday, it's your birthday, Chi-Chi's wishes you the best, ole! (laughs) Amazing, (laughs) I love it. So that was our very favorite thing, so that's not hard to imagine, but now that I live here, yeah, it's, Mexican still has quite a ways to come here, and you are helping with that in the UK, however- I am. I want to talk a little bit more about your story before we get okay. to salsa stories. No worries. Somewhere between salsa and salsa, yes. you had a career in the arts. Tell me a bit about that. I did. So yeah, so well, I went to I went to art school and so fine arts at university. Actually, art and visual culture was the official title at, at the University of the West of England in Bristol. And I had going into that, I had 100% faith that I wanted to be an artist, and that I was an artist. And and I've always had that. So I I graduated in 2005. And from then until maybe a year ago, or less than maybe eight months ago or something, I've been an artist and I've had studios and I've been involved in a number of different projects and had my own kind of individual practice, but I also worked collaboratively with other people. Being an artist is, has been a, a huge part of my life, of my identity as well. Like when you do something like that, you're, you're an actor, so you know what I'm talking about. It's so much a part of who you are. And I also, I've had numerous other jobs alongside that to pay the bills. I was going to ask, because I do feel like it's one of those things that it's like, how are you an artist? Like, how does one pay the bills? And I I obviously relate, (laughs) sadly. Well, it's the most depressing thing, because it's that thing of like, whenever you meet somebody, they the first question is, what do you do? You know, it's just the, the normal thing. And what they mean by that is, how do you make your money? Not what do you, how do you spend your time? What do you love to do with your time? Or what are your passions in life? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, um, and so then you say, oh, I'm an artist. And they're like, oh, how do you make money from that? And then you have to be like, oh, I don't really always make that much money from that. Now I have to tell you what I do for money. And then we have to have a really annoying and demoralizing conversation. It's funny you say that about what do you do with your time? Because I interviewed my friend Rachel a couple weeks ago, and she was saying that she wishes when you're standing at a party, it wasn't like, what do you do? Meaning how do you make money? How are you valued to Mm. me? Because part of that is like, what can you do for me? Versus how do you spend your time? What are your passions? And just when you were saying all that, it brought to mind, I used to have a um, OPI nail polish (laughs) and the the name of it was, I'm not really a waitress. Right. And I loved that because it it immediately conjured like it's an actor's, it's an actor's nail polish because it's like, here's my red (laughs) nail polish. I'm not really a waitress. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like I, I have done my fair share of waitressing and all the people that I worked with were doing these amazingly interesting other projects like they all had a a sort of second life and the waitressing was the thing to do to make ends meet 
but certainly not the passion in most cases anyway. But yeah, so I did waitressing and more, more recently I was freelancing in the arts. I freelanced for a national organization called AN, the Artist Information Company, which is like a, a membership organization for visual artists. And I, for them, I worked on a national campaign called the Paying Artists Campaign, which was all about trying to make sure that artists got paid a fee when they had an exhibition in a publicly funded gallery, which you would think was just something that would happen. Yeah, that definitely <laughs> gave me pause because yeah. that seemed uh, explain it's, that more. <laughs> Well, it's just, there's no standards in the industry. And throughout the sector, whether it's like a national funded organization or kind of a smaller project, so often artists are asked to give their work for free and to exhibit for free. And it's just something that's not apparent. Like most people going to a big organization would assume that the artist exhibiting has been paid a fee. But it's just not the case. Sometimes galleries will pay a set fee, like they'll pay a thousand pounds or something to an artist per show. But that show might have taken the artist two years to develop. It's all just, it's completely crazy. And it might have all been new work developed for that show that they've been invited to make. And so they'll obviously they'll have a budget for that. They'll have a budget for producing the work and so on. But in terms of fee, the fee might still be capped at like a thousand pounds. And, so, and they're just supposed to be able to support it themselves because organize, like these arts organizations aren't budgeting for artists in the same way that they are for like a staff member. But really, it should be budgeted for in the same way. Yeah. Is it something that as an actor, you hear all the time, oh, it's for exposure. So of course. Oh my God, like seriously, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> I know, we're always, I guess as any creative, but it's like, I can't eat exposure. My landlord yeah. doesn't take exposure Absolutely. for the rent and how are you supposed yeah. to live on exposure? How are you supposed to, you, you can't. And, um, and at what point can you expect to be paid? Do you know what I mean? So some of the organizations would come back to us and say, but we're supporting artists on the route to the market, for example. But that's such a narrow perspective because so many artists aren't interested in the route to the market. They don't want to be on that road. They're doing something different or they're doing things that challenge those very ideas. But I don't know. The whole thing is it's very frustrating to talk about. And it's, I think I, I, that was one of, the, one of the reasons for leaving and for deciding to stop being an artist was I, I was just disillusioned with it, but also just the lack of potential for the situation to change. I think I found being an artist both really interesting and rewarding and immensely frustrating mm -hmm. because you're doing this thing that you love and you're making really good work that you're proud of. And it's just, it becomes this thing, this impossible thing, because the, the whole reason you're an artist is because you want to make art. And that's the thing that you do the least, because it, let's not pretend that being an artist doesn't involve like a shitload of admin. Yeah. <laughs> so to be an artist, you have to have another job, first of all, which has to support your practice and your life and everything else. And so most artists have one or two jobs. I had two jobs. And that obviously took up the vast majority of my time. Then the, for the small amount of studio time that I would have left, I would be spending that looking for opportunities, writing funding applications, doing all this kind of stuff, like trying to promote what I did online, 
trying to be an engaged member of the artist community, going to events, going to talks, being present, basically, because I think visibility is a big part of it. Going to other people's openings, being supportive of other artists' shows and projects and all of that kind of stuff. It's a big time commitment, but it just seemed all impossible. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And, And then I had kids as well, and that certainly doesn't help. Even the stuff you're talking about, I guess in modern society, as much as I don't like to say it, I get the kind of we have to be on social media, we have to be promoting. I know for the podcast, I'm always like, oh, I, I, I want to tell you all about these amazing people I'm talking to, but I don't want to have to do like a dance on a Instagram reel or something. I yes. just want it to be like, listen to these cool stories. Yeah. But I know it's a necessary evil in almost anything at this point, especially creative fields. I'm always slapping pictures of my face all over my actor page on Instagram. I'm like, nobody wants to see my face, but hi, this is my face. But the thing that I think would be really difficult, like you said, with young children is the evening things. Because like you said, I go to a play to support a friend or whatever. And that that can happen quite a bit if I don't rein it in. But I'm imagining, you know, art openings and things are happening all the time. And it's it's not a lifestyle that's easy to maintain. No, it's not. I think for the first year, because I've got two kids, I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And when I had my daughter, I think for the first year, I was... I was slightly in denial, maybe like I I just I was determined to keep going and that like, it wasn't going to have a negative impact on my career, and I'd be able to keep doing stuff. And so when you have a baby, like you can take a baby places with you, like you can take a baby to an exhibition, you can take a baby to a conference, even I had a show that we had to install for a week. And I took her with me. And we were we were up in Newcastle. And there was three of us installing a group show for we were called back in five squad. And we had a big kind of exhibition up there. And the three of us between us took it in turns, we looked after my daughter. And and that's fine when you have a baby when you have a toddler you cannot do that and you can't go out at night like even when I had the baby I wasn't going out at night so yeah you're missing the openings you're missing you're not your visibility is instantly reduced because you're just not present as much and when you have a toddler and you can't go to the daytime things either and that situation just gets even worse so you're sort of out of people's minds do you know what I mean yeah That was really difficult. I think part of my decision, it's definitely a factor in my decision to to stop being an artist. I think it's interesting because so many people I talk to, I mean, I've talked to quite a few people who've become artists and maybe it started in more of a corporate job, but always had it. I feel like I'm doing the reverse. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting though, because I do feel like so often the change that people were afraid to pursue or just didn't have the opportunity to do was something creative, but maybe it was because of things like having small children and it took a while to get to that kind of creative point in their lives where they could say, I don't have small kids anymore or whatever. And it is interesting to see you doing it the other way around. Yeah, I know. I've thought about this so much. It's really weird. But I think it's way more than just the kids. The kids is like the smallest factor. But it, it does have an impact because the kids thing is not just like another thing that you have to juggle it's a framework and you Mm. have said everything else has to fit into that framework. It's already hard enough before you have kids to be an artist and have a job and make any kind of go at it. But when you add kids into that mix, all of that stuff then has to fit inside these other parameters that that are non-negotiables. So it's, yeah, it does have an impact. 
as much as I would have liked it not to have. Well, I know on your website now, it does say former with a question mark artist. <laughs> yeah, never say never. And I do think it's a part of being an artist is like a way of thinking and being and questioning in the world. And, it, and you don't lose that just because you stop practicing. And not being an artist for me it has nothing to do with not wanting to make the artwork or anything. It's just it's more to do with the politics of the art world and the reality of what being an artist actually was in my lived experience Mm -hmm. like that just didn't add up yeah and it's not like you're not doing anything creative now no (laughs) what was the straw that maybe broke the proverbial camel's back that was my dad dying so in 2019 my dad died in a thunderstorm he was living in the States still. He was living in um, South Carolina. And it was just like, it, it was an experience that just it didn't change anything overnight. I was used to my dad living away. So nothing changed in my day-to-day life except for this like sense of this absence. And I would just say that over the course of about a year, everything unraveled. Can I just go back to the thunderstorm thing? Because you hear about people dying in storms and it's like, how does that happen? Who dies in a storm? You know, that's just such an unexpected way to go. It's so unexpected. And it's such a strange thing to talk about because of that. And it seems so dramatic. The story, which has been put together through my stepmom and like the neighbors, we, we went over there for a memorial a month after it happened. And we got to speak to all of the neighbours and piece together this sort of puzzle of what happened. So basically there was this storm coming in and my dad was trying to, he was taking the dogs for a walk before the storm came in. And it literally happened across the road from his house. Like he was nearly back. He had these two big dogs and the next door neighbour saw him walking past. She waved at him and she turned to go into her house. She was nearly at her house and there was this massive, it wasn't even raining apparently at this point, there was a massive strike of lightning and thunderbolt at the same time. And she turned around and my dad was lying in the street and with like blood coming out of his head. Sorry if that's a bit graphic. I just, I'm just kind of, yeah, go on. I just, like, how crazy? Yeah, so, so totally mad. And so... We didn't know, like, we didn't know what had happened. And I'm not sure if we'll ever have 100% satisfactory knowledge on what happened because I don't know that he was, I don't think he was struck by lightning because there would have been entry wound or something like that. Mm. But I think that one possible thing, because he basically had a catastrophic head injury, that's what's written on the death certificate. Mm-hmm. And I could imagine that he had two big dogs like they hate thunder and lightning. I could just imagine that would happen. The dogs would have just sped off and could have pulled my dad to the ground or something like that could have happened. But my stepmom also did research into it and she was saying that apparently like lightning can travel through the sidewalk. So there's, who knows, who knows what happened, but, but he died anyway. So that's the result. And it was the most surreal experience because I just, it was the morning of the Bristol 10K and I've been training to do it with a mate of mine. It was her 40th birthday. And, and I woke up and I saw I had a message from my stepmom and Naz came, my partner Naz came into the room and he was like, Julie, I think you need to call Jan. And so, so I listened to this message and she, my, she was crying and she was saying, 
my dad's in hospital and and why did we all have our phones off (laughs) (laughs) and so I called her and she explained like what she knew of what had happened at that time the paramedics had come and he was still alive at that point and speaking but he didn't want them to touch him and apparently that's a common thing with a head injury Mm. and so they sedated him and then when they did all the tests and stuff in hospital they said that he had bleeding on the brain and so on and it was not a recoverable injury and that he was gonna he's basically gonna die imminently but when I spoke to Jan my stepmom she was he was still alive Mm -hmm. and I was like do I need to get on a plane and uh, she was like there's no point because you he won't you won't make it by the time you get here and I was like, okay, this is all like a lot to take in and yeah. extremely surreal. And so I hang up the phone and then everything's just normal <laughs> in the house. Right. And, and I'm supposed to be running this 10K and I'm like, do I run the 10K or do I not run the 10K? Because if I don't run it, then I feel like I'm just going to be sitting in this house and it's going to feel really weird. What will I do? And but if I do run it, that feels weird too. But at least... My training won't have gone to waste and it was actually the best thing that I did because it was like this space to process what was Mm -hmm. happening. And uh, yeah, so so we ended up going and before we ran, I got the call to say that he died. So all of this happened in the space of two hours or something, three hours. And then starting the race, that was all I was, that was all I was thinking about the whole time. Just such a sort of weird surreal experience like a really weird space to be and you're running along and all these people are clapping and cheering and everyone's super happy yeah it's so festive yeah it's so festive and and I'm running there thinking fuck my dad is dead yeah I can't relate at all to the suddenness and to the freak accident part my dad just died just over a year ago I just feel like the weird thing of being away and knowing, yes. and I think obviously there's a lot of people as adults that don't live that close to their family. Yeah, of course. But I had some of the same things because we knew, in fact, I got a letter to try to get on a plane because it's COVID, you know, we couldn't travel at that point. And the letter said something like, he is actively dying. And to have a letter saying, and, and very similar to what this, his death is imminent kind of thing. Yes. And I had an event planned with Slackline, my production company. Right. For it ended up being for the day after he died. So I got a call at five o'clock my morning. Yeah. And it was like, okay, I've got this event that I've sold tickets and I have writers and actors and directors that are all ready to come do this event. What do I do? (laughs) What did you do? I ended up doing the event. The same kind of thing. I had the same thought process. It was like, I could sit in my flat or, because I'm not getting on a plane today. It's impossible. Like I was waiting for PCR tests and all the things. And I was like, I could sit here and cry all day. Or I could kind of process. The only thing was it was a 24-hour writing kind of thing. So the the playwrights (laughs) had gone away overnight while my dad is literally dying, writing these plays. And they all bring them forward the next morning. So I'm at this point where I know my dad's died, but I'm not sharing it with anyone because yeah. I just didn't want to. And almost, wanna, he can't open up that conversation at that no, time. No, I yeah. was not ready for that. <laughs> and almost every single play had some sort of a death element. 
It was oh so bizarre. And there was no theme. It was like, you can write anything you want, but let's all write about death. No. And, and, and everyone think you were just like really moved by <laughs> the plays. <laughs> I don't know. Because I was, I feel like I probably was on so much adrenaline that I was probably overly happy. And people were probably like, wow, she's really laughing at this very sad play. Yeah. But I had a chance to read them before I actually had to see them. And then we put them on that night. And I decided because we were airing it online to put a little in memorial kind of thing at the end. And so many people were like, oh, I didn't realize your dad had died. I was like, yeah, it just happened this morning. I didn't want to talk about it. And they were like, what? But yeah. it was, it was, it, that's just what you do. You need I that time. I think people might not understand that in the moment, but like, what else are you going to do in this situation? It would be different if you like, he lived down the road and you would go to be with your family to comfort them. But when you're not in that situation and it's not possible, like you just have to keep going. Exactly. And I didn't mean to make you walk down a big painful moment, but I do feel like since that was so important to you eventually making no, this decision. It feels good to actually explain it in some way because it feels like there isn't a satisfactory way to explain it other than to say that he died in a thunderstorm, which feels really dramatic. But it's good to have said it out loud. And it is interesting, as like I said, someone who hears about that kind of thing in the news all the time to be, just be like, oh, here's a circumstance where stuff like that happens and it's just a freak accident. Well, I'm sorry that this had to be the thing that helped with this <laughs> big change, but you said it wasn't instantaneously. No, it wasn't instantaneous. But if something good has to come of something like that, then, you know, that's a good thing. So, but weirdly, my dad, he was always really supportive of me being an artist as well. We always had some really good times talking about my practice and talking about art and stuff generally. So it, feel, it does feel weird as well that I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. But... Yes. So I would say that after my dad died, I just very slowly started to question everything because something like that happens and you just realize anything could happen. Anything could happen anytime. And what am I actually doing with my life? Yes. Like really questioning things. Because I think so often, even if you're doing something that on the surface, like being an artist is something that seems like you're doing it because you love it and it's this passion of yours and whatever you're doing in your life at some point you're just plodding along you're just going through the motions because that's what you do and so I started to think about that and I was thinking has that happened to me am I just am I being an artist because that's what I do because that's what I know and how does that how does my sort of desire to be an artist stack up against the reality of that as a lived experience because yes. the reality is that I'm spread so thinly over everything that I do so I'm so I'm working freelance for this arts organization I'm teaching and um, I'm doing some associate lecturing at UE in visual culture and I am being an artist and the reality is that and, and I can't get ahead in any of them Right. Because so I'm, I'm freelancing is like off and on, it's project based. There's always some full time member of the team that would get a promotion over a freelancer. Teaching wise, it was like I knew that I didn't want to get into academia anyway. But if I had wanted to, that also is a very difficult path. And my partner's in academia, I know a lot of people in academia. And it's really not all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> and it's a very stressful job. 
and and it wasn't what I wanted to do either but in this final year that I did it I was doing the same amount of teaching as a full-time member of staff in different departments that Mm. didn't marry up at all so there's no sort of thought given to like the deadlines and when all the marking is due and if that's actually feasible for one person to do in that time frame not to mention your brain must have just been like okay it's not like I can carry over this lesson plan or whatever it's just no yeah exactly and I was getting paid. I was an hourly paid lecturer. On the face of it, your hourly rate is like, I don't know, 50 something quid, 56 quid or something. But that's supposed to account for an hour's prep time. But the reality is that you end up getting paid about 15 pounds an hour by the time you've done like all of the prep work, all of the marking. They allocate something ridiculous like 20 minutes to mark three and a half thousand word essay. Oh, yeah, no problem. It's just not possible. It's not even possible (laughs) to read that quickly, let alone write feedback. So I was sick of that as well. And it wasn't something I wanted to pursue. But if it had been, that wouldn't have been possible either because of the other commitments. And then, of course, being an artist and that having the, the least... I applied for funding and I would get funding for projects and things like that. But it's still very piecemeal and project-based and not something that you can count on for earning a living. Each project is a separate application, which of course is unpaid time. Unpaid time, of course, just speculative work. And then you have to jump through hoops to get it and you have to add all this shit onto your project to do with like public engagement and meet all of these these requirements and so on. And I just thought actually – Being an artist, I love making artwork. I love the people I work with. I like being in the art scene. I hate the art world. I really don't like how that works. I don't like the politics of it. I don't like the sort of, that it's a closed shop. I don't like that it feels impossible to break through to this like circuit of exhibited artists. Mm -hmm. And it just feels impossible. And the reality is that when I have time to make artwork, I'm not even making artwork on those times. I'm writing applications. I'm planning the next project, which hopefully will come to life if I get funding. Like, It felt like a sort of to have a practice where you would just go in to your studio and make artwork felt like that would be an absolute privilege to be able to have the time to do that. For me, it really felt like I need to first secure funding for a project and then be doing the the, almost developing the project in your head first and then going and starting experimenting and playing around and but to be able to do just go into your studio and play around just it started to just feel like a complete luxury to be able to do that and I didn't feel that I could do that so then I had to just face up to actually this that's the that is the reality this is the reality of my life right now is spread too thinly over everything I'm not getting ahead in any of it and do I even like any of it? Because <laughs> <laughs> you want to, if you're doing 10 jobs, you want to at least like one of them. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. And I, I did, they were important to me. I did a lot of things. And I also felt really lucky that I, I had the, the work that I did because I knew that they were desirable jobs that other people would have really loved to have. So I was very grateful that I had them as well, but it just also feeds into this sort of this trap in a way, because you feel so lucky that you've got this work. There's there's a million other artists in the building that you're in that would also kill to have the associate lecturer job or would love to work at AN. So I felt very fortunate. But uh, yeah, I just slowly started to question all of that. And at some point, 
and I don't remember having like a like light bulb moment or anything like that but I basically decided that I didn't know what I wanted to do that was part of the problem because I think as well it's like we were talking about I was doing the opposite like most people quit their jobs to become an artist and follow their passion and their dreams and I felt like I've decided that I don't want to do this at least I don't want to do the teaching anymore and I don't want to do the the freelancing I'm sick of freelancing if I'm going to have a job I want something with security and like Mm -hmm. maternity pay (laughs) and so I was thinking okay I'm just gonna I'm just gonna retrain I'm gonna do something totally different I don't know what that is yet but what I'm gonna do is I'm not gonna accept any more freelance work when I get offered it and this is going to be the last term that I teach and I finished teaching like just at the beginning of the first lockdown I feel like th- at this point we don't even need to say dates it's always and this is where yeah, pre-lockdown, lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I decided that I was going to um, retrain and I was going to do a coding course which was a little bit left field but I'm like a firm believer that as long as you have the determination to do something, you can cultivate an interest in in anything. And I think I am um, partly that's from being an artist because when like part of being an artist for me was that I didn't want to pigeonhole myself as an artist. I wanted yes. to I wanted being an artist to mean that I could do whatever I wanted. Like for me, it was part of this having a freedom to do that. I didn't want to be the artist who did such and such or like right. a painter or I wanted to do a performance and then do a group show and then do an installation and then do something traditional and I wanted it to be about the ideas and not about the final form of it Mm -hmm. so I think having that experience you can be interested in so many different things and you can explore all of those things is why I was what led me to that belief that you can do anything if you put your mind to it kind of thing yeah, I would definitely say that, except for when you said coding. I was like, that might be the one thing I'm like. Mm. <laughs> Maybe that's why it attracted me. Because, well, I thought it would be really interesting for a start. Like, I know not, I would I like nothing to know. about it. Yeah, yeah, I would like to know more yeah. about it. And that you can, you can build things with it. It's like really exciting. This is a whole other language. So I, I applied to do a course and I did most of the prep work for the course. But because of lockdown, it kept getting delayed because it was Mm -hmm. supposed to be in person. And then it got delayed and then they were doing it online. But I decided I didn't want to do it online. So I deferred it again until the beginning of 2021. So meanwhile, I'm not working and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? But I'm also thinking I'm going to be doing this coding course. So it's just like having to ride it out kind of thing. Right. And... In the summer, I basically started making loads of this salsa because I had this amazing recipe, basically. How did you get this recipe? So the recipe is from the restaurant. Because yeah, when but... The restaurant closed down, like, it closed down more than 10 years ago. And it was devastating because it was like, what? Where are we going to go now? <laughs> and I was absolutely gutted. But when they closed down, they gave all of their customers their regular customers the recipe for their salsa this is so generous if nothing else so generous and the other thing to say is that I always wondered why you just cannot get good salsa in the UK it seems so simple right of course people would love it 
Of course it would work. But all we have instead is fucking Doritos. Yes. It's just disgusting. <laughs> like that stuff is not salsa. That's one of the barriers that I have right now to selling my product because sometimes if I'm at a market or something, people are like, oh no, I don't really like salsa. And I'm like, but have you ever had good salsa? Yeah. I <laughs> like salsa. It. Yeah. Enough that I will eat any salsa. But I yeah. know exactly what you mean because yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like the difference is. Oh my god, the difference! It's not the same food. It's not the same food at all, and that's that. Yeah, it just it really isn't. But yeah, so I, I had this vague recollection of at some point my stepmom saying that, telling me this story about having about the restaurant giving them the recipe, and so she gave it to me, and I I do loads of batch cooking, like I'm obsessed with batch cooking, and so I would make like vats and vats of this salsa and give it and and because all we could do was go on picnics I would take it I would take it to the picnics we'd eat it I'd give some to my friends to take away and everyone was like this salsa is amazing and one day we were on our way to this weir to go wild swimming and I was suddenly like salsa maybe that's what I should do and so but then I almost as quickly as that I dismissed it because I didn't know anything about the food industry Mm -hmm. and it just, it seems too insurmountable. How do you get from having a good, like an idea to a product and then from, uh, and then having a product is all good, but then how do you get it to sell? It just seemed too big a thing. So I dismissed it. And, And then I thought, okay, maybe I will start looking into it in the new year. And, and so I did. I decided not to do the coding course. I'd been, I had a little sideline at the same time I was doing it. I had an Etsy shop, a print shop with one of my mm. friends. So I was doing that at the same time. And um, I thought, okay, after Christmas, I'm going to start looking into this salsa thing. And by this time I'd made two other recipes using that original recipe as like a flavor map. So looking at the, the quantities of acid fats, Mm -hmm. fresh ingredients, tomatoes and blah, 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 and making new recipes with it and making them more my own. So I had a a couple of recipes. I started looking into it like one day a week. And then by the end of February, I was basically doing it full time. I love it. I'm just thinking again, like I said at the beginning, it's such an American, nobody in America would think, oh, we need this quest for good salsa because we just need salsa. It's the number one condiment in America, depending on what you look at. I go into America, there's like fresh salsa and there's, there's loads of jarred salsa and, it, and it's like an aisle of salsa. Yeah, exactly. There's just the whole chip as an American chip aisle and yeah. the salsa. And there was even a Seinfeld episode where he was talking about, why does everyone love salsa? Because I love to say the word salsa. It's just it's such an American <laughs> I'm thing. I'm going to have to look for that episode. Yeah, it's definitely for you because they go on about salsa. <laughs> But yeah, I have no point to that other than to say it's just, it's interesting that it's something that you have to be pushing to people because... Yeah, yeah. But I also feel that it has so much potential because let's face it, it's fucking delicious. It is fucking delicious. (laughs) And once people have tried it, honestly, they buy it. Yeah. And, And I just feel like, I just think there's a lot of, there's a gap, isn't there, in the market basically, and there's a lot of potential for it. And you have it in some, I know you're selling it at marketplaces and things like that, but you also have it in a couple shops in Bristol now as well? Yeah, I have it in about 15 local delis and greengrocers. More than a couple. 
A few more than a couple, yes. But yeah, I need to build on that one step at a time. At this point, are you, do you have a team? Are you still batch baking? Do you bake batch making, cooking, (laughs) batch cooking all the salsa? How does that work? It is very much a one woman show at the moment, but I, I, that needs to change soon because I've basically double booked myself into loads of markets this year, which will require me to have somebody else doing one of them. So I need to get on top of that. And hopefully I can get somebody who can also help with producing the salsa as well. But at the moment, yeah, I'm doing it all myself. But the process, the production process is super simple because it's a fresh product. So it's not cooked. It's just a case of blending it, really. It takes me like a whole day to make. The maximum I could make in a long day would probably be like 350, 400, 200 gram tubs of salsa. But that sounds like a lot for one person. (laughs) It is a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be much quicker if there was two of us for sure. (laughs) But I'm mostly making about 250 tubs a week at the moment. Your website is so interesting because you only have a couple articles so far, but they're so interestingly written. First of all, we haven't even talked about it's salsa stories. And the stories are so interesting that it's like, you need more time and need somebody working with you so you can also be blogging more because it's really interesting. So my to-do list for this week is to write my next blog post. They're really, I would never think, I'm going to go on this salsa website and love the blog post, (laughs) but I really do. And I was really interested how you were saying that you never wanted to be one of those people that stands in a market and sells food or sells something. Yeah. But that's one of your favorite things. So I think that's also really interesting to be a small business owner and be out and able to approach your public. I think it also comes from the comparison of that experience to the comparison of the experience of being an artist, because when you're an artist, you like you work for months and months on making some work. Then if you're lucky, you get to exhibit it somewhere. And people come to the opening and everyone says, oh, I really like the show, but you don't get any proper feedback on it. Mm. And like, you don't always get to have a kind of meaty conversation about the work itself. And so it's, it can be a bit of an anti-climax. And you also have this feeling that like you're making this work and, you know, speaking about the general population, nobody gives a fuck. You're making this work, you're putting all this time and energy in it. No one's going to see it. And no one wants to see it. No one cares. No one. No one's going to like, like galleries and blah blah whatever. <laughs> so the experience of that, which is very demoralizing and depressing, compared to going to a market, giving people something that they want, firstly, and that they and don't that even they, know they want. They don't even know they want it, but once they've tried it, then they realize they want it and they love it. And they're like, wow, that is amazing. I didn't know salsa could be this good. For me, that's like the most gratifying experience coming from the experience of being an artist where you put all this time into something and you can be met with indifference. Whereas making this salsa, it just lights people up and makes them happy. And that is such a rewarding thing to experience as the person who's made it. I have two questions now. So one is what's been the biggest challenge so far, but I also want to know, this isn't really a two-parter question, but I'm going to phrase it this way. What's the ambition? Do you want to be the number one condiment in the UK? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot the first question. I I know I should never phrased it that way. It was just what challenges, what's been the biggest challenge so far? I think the biggest challenge is, first of all, the mindset to do it, because you're constantly battling self-doubt. And if you let that impact on the decisions that you make, then 
you won't ever get anywhere because if you do everything, play it safe for everything, then it, it would just be impossible to get going. If you always think, oh, before I do, before I, I don't know, approach a retailer, I need to, I need to have first sold it at loads of markets and have made enough money that I can be sure to produce X amount and blah, blah, blah. Like it just slows everything down. You just have to go for it. And I just think, just tell the doubt to fuck off yeah. and and don't let it, even though you still feel it, don't let it impact the decisions that you're making for the business because the business, it needs different things. It needs things to progress that you need money for and you have to find a way to make it happen, basically. If you weigh every single decision and I have to do this before I can do this, it yeah. just doesn't get done. It doesn't. I heard someone... I can't remember who this is now, but someone said, look for the elegant solution. And I really liked that. Like, for example, obviously having a small business is really difficult financially. And you always think, what can I, so what do I need? I need more money. So I know I'll do more markets. I'll do a weekday market. I'll do like two markets. I'll do a market every day of the weekend. And then, so you're working like three times as hard, but maybe for a little bit more money, but there's a more elegant solution. But the elegant solution is probably something that you're afraid of, sourcing it out so that you could approach a bigger retailer or approaching a wholesaler because you don't think that you're ready yet. I'm saying right. you as though I'm not talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> but when you I'm say like, you, I'm like, I always tell people this is like my therapy session for the week. So I'm just like, yes, I hear you. Yes, I need <laughs> yes. to make older decisions. <laughs> You are right. Yes, thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> thank you, Coach Julie. <laughs> I'm, I'm coaching myself here as well. <laughs> so I'm, I keep reminding myself of that. Look for the elegant solution. What is the elegant solution here? In terms of everything as well, actually, it really helped me because up until now, I've had two flavors. So I've got coriander and lime and a chipotle. I'm so hungry. And, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to send you some. And I'm trying to develop some new flavors. And so I'm working on a mango and mint but mm. I, ha I can't quite get the texture because mango is quite slimy mm -hmm. and I have to think about the shelf life and that kind of stuff. So I'm working on that. But then I kept thinking, look for the elegant solution. And this sounds so stupid. But I was like, tomato. <laughs> tomato salsa. Like, why haven't I started with a tomato salsa? It's the classic salsa right like yes. it's so simple the other two salsas essentially have a tomato salsa base and then there's flavors added to that so I was like that could actually just be a salsa on its own you should call it simple salsa salsa <laughs> stories salsa. simple salsa because <laughs> that is what salsa is it's simple salsa yeah, it is. Classic salsa might sound a bit better. But... Oh, I like the alliteration. Salsa stories. Simple salsa. Simple salsa. <laughs> it's true. So yeah, so now I have three flavors. I'll hopefully be launching the tomato one properly in, in March sometime. But yeah. And then I forgot now because there was another question after that one, wasn't it? About the challenges. And oh, if you just about... wanted to, it's just if you wanted to take over and be the oh, make, yeah, I do. salsa the number one condiment in the UK. I do. I put, I definitely I want to I want to do that that's my ultimate goal this is a really condiment heavy country as well because mm. there's brown sauce and there's ketchup like all the American <laughs> stuff plus like brown sauce and things we don't eat anymore in America like mint sauce and yeah <laughs> and things. so you have a lot of competition but I'm convinced yes. we can do it thank you <laughs> thanks very much you have competition but not in the salsa world so you're gonna get there 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I have to win in the salsa world first and then slowly take over the other condiments. Yeah, like brown sauce. (laughs) At at the same time, I think there's room for brown sauce. Come on. We've all got space for brown sauce. So you kept saying, look for the elegant solution. Is that your quote? Well, no, it wasn't actually, but it would have been a good one if I knew who said it. (laughs) (laughs) What I think is it's not so much a quote as like a saying, but it's where there's a will, there's a way. Because I honestly think half the problem of doing anything is just convincing yourself that you can do it. And also, have you ever had this experience where like, you've got this shiny new idea and you're, it's so, you're really excited about it and you tell someone and then they just piss all over your chips and bring you back down to reality, telling you oh, all the like, yes. why you can't do it? Like, oh, that would be really hard though because of this and this. And it's, no, people don't tell me that. Tell me how the fuck I can make it happen. Do not plant those seeds in my mind, those little seeds of doubt. Just tell me. Yes. Yes. Where there's a will, there's a way. Salsa stories, simple saying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hung up on it. (laughs) But it is true because people are, I think it's when people aren't creative with ideas and they get really Somewhere deep in their souls, they're jealous of an exciting, bright, new, shiny idea, like you said. So instead of saying, or instead of having the vision to support it, they're just like, I didn't think of it. It's not a good idea. Or coming from a place of doubt in themselves where they're genuinely looking out for you. Like they think, oh, you could get yourself into a lot of financial difficulty or what if it doesn't work out, blah, blah, blah. So they're they're coming from this sort of well-intentioned place. But it's, it speaks of their own self-doubt in terms of what they think they could achieve themselves, I think. The way you phrased it was so much nicer than me. <laughs> <laughs> you offered so much kindness to these people. And I was like, how dare you piss on my chips? You have some nerve. My idea is fabulous and you have no vision. <laughs> So where can people, I I know you said it's in many markets and things in Bristol, but where can people find you and eat some delicious salsa? You can find me online anywhere. I ship UK wide and it's www.salsastories.co.uk. And don't worry, I'll put that in the show notes so it's easy to find. (laughs) Don't forget that extra W. (laughs) The worldwide wonderful web. I, I ship online and in Bristol, you can find me at Tobacco Factory Markets on the second and last Sundays of the month. Oh yeah, that's a cool place to be too. Those of you who are here, go check out, get some good salsa, the kind that actually is delicious instead of the kind we're used to in the shops. <laughs> and America, don't worry, once Julie takes over, you'll be able to have some too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be t- much tougher to crack that market, I think. Yeah, I think it might be, but where there's a will. There's a way, absolutely. Is there anything else you would like to tell listeners? I think just open your hearts and um, give salsa a try. Open your mouths and give salsa a try. (laughs) (laughs) That would also help. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm so cheesy today. What kind of salsa did she eat before she started recording? (laughs) Thank you so much, Julie, for joining me. It's been really fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me.
And best of luck with everything. I can't wait. I can't wait for the number one condom. It. Well, I can't even say it. I can't wait for. Never mind. I'm not even going to say it. Thanks, Julie. Bye. <laughs> See. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.